0: Thank you, Jason and worship team, and uh, thank you, David, for leading us in prayer. Um, those of you may already know this, David uh, Darlene, along with Daniel Henderson, is one of our new elder candidates, and uh, that process is really wrapped up right now, and so next Sunday, we'll be bringing another announcement to tell you about the next step for David and for Daniel in the process of becoming elders, but it's been a year uh, these guys have been on the journey and in this process, so appreciate David's leadership. Uh, good to see you here this morning. It is a good morning. Honored to be with you here. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 in just a few minutes. If you've got a Bible or a phone or a tablet or a gadget or have it memorized, go ahead and turn there to Hebrews chapter 2. If you want a copy of God's Word, we have Bibles around you um, under the chairs. They're black hardback Bibles. Those are there for you. Um, As always, I invite you to open God's Word to to see that that God himself is saying these things, not just taking my word for it. Um, So it's always important to open God's Word to hear directly from him. As we get started, just a couple things. Um, first of all, it is, a, it is a vacation weekend, and so I know we got a lot of folks visiting here. Honored to have you here. Guests, family members, thank you for uh, joining us for worship this morning. And uh, so just to give you a little bit of a, of a catch-up, we're, we're opening up a sermon series in the book of Hebrews, and we've, we're just, this is just the second week, so last week was Hebrews chapter one. Um, we looked at really the, the primary theme of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus, when compared to anything else in heaven and on earth, is better. And so really that's going to set the theme and the pace for every sermon in this series as we compare Jesus to the sacrifices in the Old Testament temple, as we compare Jesus to the priests, as we compare Jesus to other things. But Jesus is better. He's preeminent. He is supreme. He is higher than. And so last week, two things that we noticed. One of those is that for the folks who were reading Hebrews for the first time, there evidently was some sort of struggle with the difference between worshiping Jesus and worshiping angels. We know that they were more than likely Jewish Jewish Christian recipients. And so um, more than likely were under some significant persecution from the Roman government at this point in history. Many of them were beginning to fade away or drift away or to uh, shrink back in fear um, from following Jesus faithfully. And so uh, there's a lot of encouragement in the letter of Hebrews to encourage them not to fade away, as we'll see today, not to drift away, not to shrink back, but to remain faithful And not only that, but to understand that the reason why we do that is because Jesus is not a prophet or a teacher or merely a man or even an angel, but he's higher than, he's better than anything on heaven and on earth. And so chapter 2 then begins with the word, therefore. So since that's true, since Jesus is better than anything in heaven and on earth, earth therefore then then we're going to get some more instructions on how as Christ's followers we are to respond to what he has told us and taught us and so Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says therefore since he's better therefore we as Christians must pay attention or pay much closer attention which is really interesting wording in the original language much closer attention to what we have heard we've already heard it lest we drift away now that's going to set kind of a tone for this chapter the preeminence the importance the power the position of the things that Jesus has said this message we have heard and so we're going to get a lot of reasons why we are to listen or pay attention or pay closer attention to this message that we have heard but before we even get there let's unpack verse one together and look more clearly at what's being encouraged of us so therefore since Jesus is better we must pay much closer attention. It's really interesting wording here. Another way to render this in English would be to pay attention with increasing measure. Now think about that. So for whatever the gospel means to me today, for whatever the teachings of Jesus mean to me today, however much attention I'm giving to them, that tomorrow I would give more. And then when I wake up the next day, I would give more. And for everything that's stirring in my heart because of the gospel today, that I would wake up tomorrow expecting it to stir me More, Rather than growing complacent or becoming bored with the gospel, I would every day in an increasing measure give my mind's attention, my heart's affection to the gospel or the teaching of Jesus. Pay much closer attention with increasing measure to what we have heard. Lest we, what? Drift away. We think about this imagery of drifting. I heard this week... Um, the the life of the Christian who's following Jesus compared to three different boats. So bear with me, if you will. The first of which is the speedboat. It's got lots of power, lots uh, lots of control. The steering is tight. It goes as fast as you want, wherever you want. And so when you're in control, you're piloting it. Right? And so the Christian life for some who still try to maintain control, still want to set their own pathway, want to accomplish their own will, yet at the end of their life they want to make sure they go to heaven are like those who are driving the speedboat. They want to control the pace and the speed and the direction. And, and, and I, I like the idea that when I die I go to heaven, but for the most part here on earth I want to be in control. It kind of reminds me of the, the Carrie Underwood song. Right? Jesus, take the wheel. This idea that when things get tough, Jesus, I'll invite you to step over here and take the wheel for a moment to give me a breather. But for the most part, I want to be in control. Right? I know none of you struggle with control. right? But then the far other end of that spectrum would be the life raft, just drifting and tossed about, just going with the flow. And so many of us as Christians today live that way. No real intentionality behind what we do. Right? We're just going to go with the flow. God's got it all planned. I'm just going to go with the flow. He brings somebody to me who, who needs me to, to love on him. I'll love on him, but I'm not going to go out of my way. I'm just going to sit here, kick back, enjoy the sun, and just drift around. Well, that's interesting. That's the word that is used here is drift. Ephesians 4 uses that too, that when we don't grow in our relationship with Christ together, that we're like, like, like infants out on the waves just drifting, being tossed about from every cunning teaching and doctrine that's, that's being tossed around. We're just drifting around. Well, there's a third um, boat that's used, I think, to more accurately describe the life of the Christ follower, and that's the sailboat. There's so many things about the sailboat that are outside of the control of the captain, right? Like the speed and the wind direction and when the wind blows and when it doesn't blow. Yet, there is a role for the captain to play as he every morning raises the sails in expectation that the wind is going to blow and move. And so think about those illustrations as you think about your own Christian journey. Which one is more revealing of your life? Are you the control freak? You've got the Christian t-shirt on, you've got the bumper sticker, your radio station is dialed into KLTY, yet you're in control and you'll let Jesus know when you need him to take over. Or are you more adrift, drifting around? My hope would be that today we would heed this call to pay attention to the gospel, to raise ourselves in expectation expecting God to work in us and through us. Now, the caution here is to not, what, drift. Now, here's why I think we need to hear that today. We're prone to drift, aren't we? Right now, every seasoned Christian in the room should be nodding your head. The young Christians need to hear that. We're prone to drift. Primarily because we're prone to forget. Forgetting includes becoming comfortable with, complacent with, At one point in time, the death of Jesus on the cross and the power of his resurrection moved us, it captivated us, it motivated us, it compelled us, but then what? We're prone to forget. We're prone to forget the significance of it, the the great depth of God's mercy over our lives, that, that we were desperate people, wandering in darkness without hope, and that God has rescued us. We're prone to forget. We're also prone to wonder. We're prone to wonder back in rebellion to who we used to be. We're prone to drift. If we just drift, we're prone to drift back to the old us, to think like we used to think and react like we used to react. We're prone to drift. And so the, the antidote here, the, the, the answer here from the author of Hebrews is what? Become more moral? Write down your morality on a dry erase board and check your boxes every week? Put your Bible reading and your, and your, and your prayer life up on the dry erase and make sure you check your boxes? That's actually not the prescription here. What is it? Pay attention with increasing measure to what you have heard. So now what's going to happen, this is going to connect us back to Hebrews 1. So let's think about maybe if you weren't here last week, Hebrews 1 opens with, uh, let me just read the first two verses of Hebrews 1. And the author of Hebrews 1 reminds us that we've heard two different sets of words from God the Old and New Testament. So beginning in verse 1, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So two different sets of God speaking. Now in chapter 2, the author is going to assume that we remember that because we just read it. He's going to bring that up again and look at what he says in verse 2. For since the message declared by the angels proved reliable. Okay, This is the same message spoken by the prophets in Acts 7. The Old Testament is referred to this way. Many times in the Old Testament, angels were involved in bringing God's message. These are messengers to the people. And so the Old Testament then, if you think about it, this message that was declared by the angels, it proved to be reliable. It's a really important part of what we're supposed to understand here. It proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So what the author is saying is, as just as we think about the Old Testament, so these are Jewish Christians. For them, the Old Testament was huge. They had memorized, if not all of it, most of it as young boys and girls. And so in their minds, there was no reasonable room for doubt that the Old Testament, the way God spoke through the prophets and the angels, was reliable. They believed everything that God had promised, everything that he had predicted, had come to fruition. We talked about this last week, that every promise that God made in the Old Testament became a yes in Jesus. And so what the author is saying to these Hebrew Christians, in the same way you trust the Old Testament, we God spoke through the prophets, in that same way, you need to trust the words of Jesus. Verse 3 the angels' message proved reliable. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Talking about this gospel message, as we'll see in just a moment, that was proclaimed by Jesus. If the Old Testament was reliable, if the message of God through the angels and the prophets was reliable, how much more reliable is it when God's Son speaks to us? And Think about that. Right? For the... For the most part, we hope the prophets are getting it right. The New Testament would tell us that the Old Old Testament prophets spoke as the Holy Spirit of God led them. So we believe what they say. Angels show up, bigger deal, right? I mean, these angelic beings, they got a message from God. They're bringing it to us verbatim. But how about the Son of God speaking? You feel the contrast here? How much more, or how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, such a great message? It was Declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard. Verse four, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So we've got two different sets of words. We have the Old Testament that proved itself at this point to be completely reliable. How much more then should we trust and rely on the words of Jesus? Now what's going to happen is the author is going to build a case on the reliability and the power of the teaching in the words of Jesus. But what he has said right here is, first of all, we need to understand that everything that Jesus spoke, God spoke. There was no angel, there was no prophet, directly from the Father's heart to the lips of Jesus, and he spoke it. But not only that, it was affirmed or tested by those men who were disciples who became apostles. These men affirmed it. If anybody knew, right, if, if Jesus was off his rocker, if there was a mistake in what he taught, I mean, these men knew the flaws, right? I mean, that's what we learn about each other. One of the reasons why we hesitate to walk in communities, because you're going to know where my flaws are. And so Jesus walked. He lived. He ate with these men he taught publicly and then spent time with them privately his own earthly brother became one of his apostles if anybody knew if jesus was off his rocker right his brother knew yet his brother did what not only preached the gospel wrote down words that became our scriptures gave his life for the sake of the message of jesus god spoke through jesus the disciples affirmed it, and the Holy Spirit witnessed or bore witness to it. Now, today is on the Christian calendar. I don't know if you pay attention with detail to the Christian calendar. We had Easter um, just a while back, so today is, um, is symbolically the day of Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles in Acts 2. It's a really remarkable moment when the Holy Spirit bore witness to the power of the gospel. If you're familiar with what happened the, uh, the apostles and a few others are gathered to pray. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls in such a way that the building begins to rumble. And the, and the people on the streets begin to take notice. Something weird is going on, going on in that church over there. And then Peter steps up and proclaims the gospel in such a way that the people on the streets, all kinds of foreigners from different backgrounds and languages, are hearing the gospel in their own language. One of the miraculous signs is Peter preaches and, 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 and speaking through tongues. Everybody is able to hear this gospel message. Then, like 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus that day. This miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. And then from there, as you read the book of Acts, this over and over again testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit that bore witness to this powerful message of the gospel. This is what the author of Hebrews is referring to. Jesus proclaimed it. His apostles and disciples attested to it, and the Holy Spirit bore witness to it. Two different words the Old Testament, the New Testament, the law, the gospel. Here, the author says this. Remember how reliable the Old Testament was to do everything it said and it brought retribution for sins? Well, guess what? The gospel is going to be just as reliable as it promises the forgiveness of your sins. In the same way that the Old Testament brought demand, this, this gospel of the New Testament brings promises. The distinction between the Old and New Testament is that the Old Testament shows us where we're wrong with no answer for what to do with it. And then the gospel comes in. The gospel says, you know what, the Old Testament's right. The Old Testament's really good at revealing where your sins are. It's really good at it. But if that's all that happens, we're left hopeless, right? I don't need you to just come tell me where my flaws are. I need you to tell me how to fix it. And that's where the gospel comes in. And the gospel says everything that the Old Testament said about us is reliable but there's hope in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And the point the author is making, that is what is consistent about the two, is that they are both reliable. And we should pay attention to the gospel with increasing measure. It should mean more to me today than it meant to me yesterday. Now think about this. Why do we need to hear the gospel and think about the gospel, and pay attention to the gospel on a daily basis, because we're prone to drift, right? And this is what we need. We need the gospel to anchor us in what is true. Just like Adam and Eve, we're still prone to bind to lies. We're still prone to believe the lies of the enemy as he tries to talk us into not believing what is true. We need the gospel to anchor us in what is true. We need the gospel to keep us from forgetting who we are, If you're in Christ, you're a son and and or a daughter of the Most High God, and that is true today and tomorrow. And we're prone to forget that, aren't we? We're prone to forget that God has stamped us and sealed us with his Holy Spirit. We need the gospel to remind us that our freedom was purchased at the expense of Jesus' suffering and death. We need the gospel to heighten our awareness of our sin and to stir our affections for Jesus. We need the gospel to remind us that eternity has been secured. We need the gospel to help keep, help keep us focused on Jesus as the object of our worship. We're prone to forget all those things, aren't we? We're prone to drift away from those things. In one moment, I'm off the throne of my life. Jesus, take the wheel. And in the next moment, I'm, try, I'm fighting for it back. I'm ready to take the lead now. And we need the gospel to remind. I need the gospel to remind me I am not fit to drive my life. I am not fit to predict my eternity or set my course. I'm not. I'm not fit for it. I have adequately proved with my life that I am not fit to sit on the throne. And I need the gospel to remind me of that as I see the sacrifice of Jesus over and over on my behalf. I am reminded he died for me. That's what I accomplished with my life. I need what he accomplished on my behalf. So the author says, in order to keep from drifting, pay more attention with increasing measure to the words of Jesus. It's interesting because in Matthew 7, if you remember something Jesus said as he's preaching there, this famous Sermon on the Mount, as he gets towards the end, he says this as a conclusion to his sermon. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, Sound familiar to some of you? And does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall or it didn't drift because it had been founded on the rock. What's the rock? The words of Jesus. In contrast, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. Every day of your life should be founded on this compelling, heart-changing, eternity-setting message of Jesus. If you're taking notes with us today, pay attention to the gospel of Jesus because his message is trustworthy. It's reliable, it's trustworthy, it's time-tested, and it's true. His message is trustworthy. Now, in verse 5, we're going to pick this back up again. Again, there's going to be a contrast between Jesus and the angels. Verse 5. The author reminds us, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So this opening statement, thinking about the world to come, everything that is, reminds us, it wasn't the angels that the world to come was subjected to. In contrast, so let me start again, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. In contrast, Thinking of Jesus, verse 6, it, was, it has been testified somewhere. What is man? That you are mindful of him. The son of man, that you care for him. As we're going to see, talking about his own son, Jesus. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. This is a very remarkable truth about our gospel. If the gospel is true, then here's what happened. Jesus, in all his glory, momentarily, Set aside his glory and put on humanity. Now think about this. Complete humanity, as we're going to see laid out here. Experiencing everything that it is to be human. Matter of fact, look at how he enters the world. Tell you what, I'm going to come into the world as as an infant. Born to this teenage, first-time mother who knows nothing about raising kids. Fully subjecting himself to the human experience. Dad is Joe, and he's Carpenter. I'm going to be fully subjective to what it means to be human. For a moment, he was made lower than the angels. And then after his resurrection, we keep reading. And you have now crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So remember how he started? It wasn't the angels to whom the world was subjected it was to Jesus. You've put everything under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Now, think about that. The fallen world is completely subjective to the authority of Jesus. We're going to talk in a minute about what it means that it doesn't seem like it is, even though it is but right now the author wants us to see Jesus as supreme and sovereign in authority over the universe and everything is subject to him. Under his sovereign control. I love this next phrase. It's so helpful. Now everything is put Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control at present, at this moment, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is so helpful. What he's saying is this, that in living in a fallen world, uh, David prayed about that. So much evidence that the world around us is fallen. Right From the moment of the fallen world, there has been, there has been strife and conflict and murder and death and war and, 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 and self-promotion and self-idolatry and just on and on from every generation to every generation. We live in a fallen world that is, that is stricken with the curse of sin and death. And right now, in this moment, you might say it doesn't look like it's subject to him. That's what he's saying. Everything has been made subject to Jesus, even though at this moment it may not look like it. This is so helpful for us in understanding where we are right now as Christians in the timeline of human history. This is what I like to refer to as the now and the not yet. What now is true is that Jesus sits in sovereign authority over the created world. Complete the not yet part is that in this moment, it doesn't look that way. The author of Ephesians in chapter 2 will talk about the prince of this world, how Satan is maneuvering and manipulating and still spinning lies, and he looks like he's in control on a lot of days. Just open the news, right? Does it look like Jesus is in control or Satan's in control? You can see tons of evidence of an enemy who is moving rampant, seeking to kill and steal and destroy and devour and tear families apart and tear lives apart and tear nations apart and create confusion. And and there's tons of evidence it looks like. But here's what the author is saying. Even though it looks like that, it's not true. Everything is in subjection to King Jesus, the now and the not yet. Now, if you're taking notes, pay attention to the gospel. Pay attention to the gospel of Jesus because the world is subject to his authority. Even though in this moment, right now, it doesn't look like it, he is sitting on his throne. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to come back and talk about how that is also true in our personal lives. The now and the not yet. But right now, we're just talking about the created world subject to his control. Verse 9. So before we even read verse 9, let's think about that. If we think about the created world as we understand it, we, it's, there's this funny uh, saying, I guess, this humorous saying, the only thing sure in life are what? Death and taxes, right? And, 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 so, and then there's the follow-up, but we want to get there. So, but the reality is that it seems like, if we're going to say there's, there's only one sure thing that seems to be controlling humanity right now, it's death. Death seems to be in control. Now think about that. So the author just said, everything is in subjection to Jesus. Look at what he says next. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now think about that. Not only is the created world subject to his control, death itself is submissive to Jesus. That's what the resurrection is just showing us. The one thing that you and I can't get away from in our own strength. We can climb to the top in, in popularity. We can gather for ourselves riches. We can, we can have healthy families. We can build these little momentary kingdoms here on earth. But the one thing that you and I can't do in our own strength is overcome death. What the author is saying is not only is the created world subject to Jesus' sovereign lordship, but death itself answers to him. It's going to come up again in verse 14. Pay attention to the gospel because death is subject to his authority. Pay attention. His message is reliable. The created world, universe, all of it is subject to his authority. Even death itself is subject to his authority. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, this is Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist... In bringing many sons to glory. Stop for just a second. That phrase implies so much. What does he mean by bringing many sons to glory? Remember earlier he called this same thing the great salvation. So here's what's happening by faith in the lives of those who believe and follow Jesus. Um, That when you truly trust Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, that great salvation, here's what happens. In that moment, your sinful self is rendered dead. And Jesus' righteousness now robes you so that at day one, moment one, the instant you believe, you are able to stand before a holy God and he looks on you as perfectly righteous. What used to be scarlet and stained is now white as snow. Perfect in that moment. That's what we call salvation, justification. But here's the thing. There's still a struggle left, isn't there? Come on, seasoned Christians. The new Christians in the room need to see you nod your head. There is still a very real struggle to be had. The now and the not yet. The moment I believe I am saved and I am rendered a son of the most high God. There's not a checklist I have to check off to get into heaven. There's not a, a, a to-do list I, that I can go through to earn my way in. I'm in in that moment. I am a son of the most high God, perfectly righteous before his presence. The problem is come hang out with me. And you're going to see moments that don't look like that I have been saved. What, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the sanctification process. Every day, I am to pay more and more attention to the gospel because that is what God is using to continue the process of transforming, transforming me, sanctifying me into what? Into the image of Jesus. And so this, the New Testament refers to this as glorification, to go from what David talked about, Ephesians 2, dead to being made alive. Without hope to, being, to having hope. From walking in darkness to walking into light. From walking in lostness and having no purpose and not knowing God to now walking with purpose and identity and walking in relationship with God now every day until the moment I leave this earth, I am in a process of being transformed into the image of Jesus. Romans 8 says it this way. You just want to listen. You can jot this down and go back later if you want to. Starting in verse 28. And we who are Christians, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's a statement of faith. Does it always look good? No. But we trust, right, as we follow Jesus, that what he's unfolding for my life is good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be, Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he called, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It's a really deep and theological way of saying the same thing that Paul said in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will will bring it to completion. Thank God. Anybody ready to be there? Please complete the work you began in me. I'm so tired of those days where I can, I can relate to Paul in Romans 7 where he says, I keep doing the things I don't want to do. And all the things I know I'm supposed to do, I can't do. I'm so tired of being able to relate to Paul. I love this verse. Please, God, complete the work you've began in me. What is he talking about? The glorification work of transforming me into the image of Jesus. But here's the thing. That verse isn't ended yet. Here's the rest of it. And I'm sure this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion when? When? When I'm 60? When I'm 80? When? At the day of Jesus Christ. When I stamp out of this temporary fallen world into the eternal presence, the eternal glorious presence of Jesus, at that moment I'm done, fully transformed. And every moment between now and then, I am in the transformational process that we call sanctification. Glory by glory, struggle by struggle, mistake by mistake, victory by victory, moment by moment, corner by corner, I am being transformed into the image of Jesus. I'm in the process of being glorified. Paul said, right now I see in part, I know in part, one day I shall see fully. He's talking about that day when he finally steps into the unhindered presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And transformation is done. Transformation will be complete. But look at what the author of Hebrews says. So verse 10. For it was fitting that he. For whom and by whom all things is, exist. In bringing many sons to glory. And daughters by the way is implied here. Men and women. Boys and girls are being transformed into the image of Jesus. Many sons are being brought to glory. Should make the founder of of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he's saying it's fitting that God made the founder of our salvation, which is Jesus. He made him perfect through suffering. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are, who are sanctified, sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So here's the thing. I don't get to a certain point in my Christian journey where God goes, okay, now, finally, I'll call you a son. You're finally there. You haven't graduated yet, but you're better than where you started. From moment one to day one, I'm called a son and a brother of Christ. He's not ashamed. Why? Because my ability to get into the presence of God is based on what Jesus has done on my behalf, not based on my performance. It's based on his. And so from day one, moment one, by faith, Jesus says to you, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers or sisters. I know you don't have your act together. That's what we're going to do for the rest of your life. We'll be working on this. Parents who have children, young children, who've accepted Christ, invited Jesus in their heart, and made that profession of faith. There are days when you see it and probably other days when you don't, and it's easy to get frustrated and maybe even to doubt. But this should explain, right? This should explain some things. So rather than... You know, grabbing the Bible and using it as a whip on our children. And I thought you said you were a Christian. Quit talking back to me. What should we do? Verse one, help them pay attention with increasing measure to the gospel. Why? Because that's the process that's transforming them and making them more like Him. That same frustration that you potentially may have with your kids, God could have with you, right? But He doesn't. In patience, what does He do? He invites us back to the gospel. We're prone to drift. Right? And so rather than seeing God as this, you know, the Coast Guard deflating our life raft, let's see God as this rescuer who comes to us and, and brings us back. The reason why you're drifting is because you get got your sails down. What does it mean to, to lift your sails as a sailboat? It means to pay attention to the gospel. To stand on that which you believe today and tomorrow and the next. All right. Verse 12, this is what we just talked about, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus is going to do that. He's not afraid to say, oh, yeah, that one's my brother. That one's my sister. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This beautiful imagery that Jesus is not embarrassed to stand before God and say, yep, he's mine, she's mine, he's mine, she's mine. You're taking notes. This is the next one. Pay attention to the gospel of Jesus, because through Him, many sons and it's implied daughters are being brought to glory. He's not just providing life insurance for what happens in the next life. And if you're in Christ in this moment, the God who is sovereign over the whole universe is working in you right now, in this moment. How is He doing that? He's reminding you of what is true. He's speaking the gospel to you over and over and over again. Verse 14. Since therefore the children, talking about us. This is beautiful imagery of Jesus putting on our humanity for two primary reasons. And we're going to see this as the last verses of Hebrews 2 play out. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, We we share that with Jesus. He put on our flesh and our blood. We share in that, that experience of humanity with him. He himself likewise partook of the same things. Think about that. He partook of the same things. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry, like really hungry, to fast for 40 days hungry. So when my four-year-old says, I'm starving, and I'm like, we have 18 minutes left before dinner's done. I can't make it. That's so now we're talking about. We're talking about fasting for 40 days here, hungry, right? Going without food for long periods of time. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be made fun of. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it is to be left out, to be not invited. He knows what it is to be mistreated, to be abandoned, to be abused, to be taken advantage of. He knows to be the only one. What it feels like to be the only one who's taking his job seriously. Some of you are frustrated. We share that frustration with Jesus when you're at work. Nobody around here cares. Like I'm the only one who's taking my job seriously. Jesus knows what that's like. <laughs> Absolutely. These are just a few examples. Jesus, you know that feeling that lump in your throat when your you, 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 your body wants to cry and you don't want it to, and your like esophagus cramps up, and that hurts. Jesus knows that feeling, to be so broken that your body begins to cramp up. He also knows what it's like to be worn out, to be tired, to be exhausted after a demanding day, parents. The moment when you want to pull your hair out, you just want to drive away, hope that your kids will be there when you get back, those moments. Your marriages, you know that moment when he or she is just so hard-headed, They're never going to change. Jesus knows what it's like to deal with hard-headed people. Trust me. Exhibit Peter. Exhibit me. He also knows what it's like to feel the pain when skin is being pierced or torn or bruised. He knows what it feels like to, to, to draw and to exhale the last breath of life. Jesus knows what it is to be murdered, to be tortured. Now think about that. He has partaken in everything that it means to be human. Two primary reasons. He partook of the same things that through death, this is the rest of verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Primary reason. Jesus took on humanity and he took on our suffering and our death to defeat it for us. It's what in a few verses is going to be called the propitiation. He took our place. Verse 15, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Think about that. If Jesus never resurrected from the grave, you and I would be subjective to Lifelong slavery of a fear of death. It would haunt us at every turn. The older we get, the the more fearful we become. But he overcame death, releasing us from that slavery. Verse 17. For surely it is not the angels he helps. Man, I need to be reminded of that. He didn't die on the cross for the angels. He died on the cross for me, for you. He helps the offspring of Abraham. People. That's who he helps. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here's the thing. No other form of humanity could die on behalf of the sins of the world. We needed a perfect sacrifice, and we needed a sacrifice that was human. So God says, I will do it. If you struggle with that, God, why would you do it that way? Why would you put on flesh and blood, come be like us, and then die? Why wouldn't you do it that way? Jesus became human, a little lower than the angels, for a moment to take our place. Without him doing that, every one of us deserved to go to the cross many times over. We're going to look and we get to chapter 9 and 10 of Hebrews about how the sacrifices of the Old Testament did nothing to fix the hearts of man. We needed a substitute, a perfect substitute, to go to the cross on our behalf. And that's what the author is saying here, that he might become the merciful and high, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted pay attention with increasing measure to the gospel of Jesus because he took your place on the cross and he knows the real struggles in your life. There isn't isn't a struggle represented here in the room that he's not familiar with and that he has not had victory over. Think about that. Every struggle right now that you have, he's not only familiar with it, he has victory over it. And there's a process taking place in your life. It's the process I like to call the now and the not yet. I am already a son of the Most High God, and the not yet means that He is working on me. There are days where it doesn't look like it. But by and large, over all, He is transforming me day by day, glory by glory, struggle by struggle, victory by victory, into the image of Jesus. And He's doing that in you. How do we participate? Pay attention with increasing measure to the gospel. Preach it to yourselves when you get out of bed in the mornings. My purpose is not based on how well I perform today. My purpose is based in how Jesus has performed on my behalf. My acceptance is not based on how many friends I make today or how many people I impress. My acceptance is based on the fact that God has already right now accepted me. Get out of bed and preach that gospel to yourself. Your relationship with God Your position in his presence isn't based on how well you don't sin that day. Your your ability to be in God's presence is secured from the moment you wake up. Walk in it. When you mess up, quick to repentance, right? You need the gospel in that moment. We need to pay attention to the gospel with increasing measure lest we, what? Drift. Let's pray together. And uh, I want to just extend one last invitation to you. If you're here today and you're still kicking the tires on Christianity, and you're still waiting on enough proof or to be fully convinced, I mean, here's the point. The author is saying Jesus has more than proved himself to be reliable. But at the end of the day, there still has to be a faith move. still has to be a faith move. There has to be a point where you yourself either believe it or you don't. And today, there's a beautiful invitation open to every person in this room to be adopted into the family of God, to have every sin forgiven, like though you were once like scarlet, to walk out of here white as snow, perfectly righteous right now by simply believing in Jesus, trusting that he is the son of God and that his words are reliable and true. You can make that decision right where you're seated. So many men and women, students, children have made that decision sitting in this room, between them and God, I believe. You also may want to talk with somebody about that. I want you to know that our prayer partners and elders will be back in our Connect Corner, and they're here today to talk with you and pray with you about what it means to be a Christian. But they can't make the decision for you. You've got to make that decision in your heart. I believe. I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he did for me. In that moment you believe, in the moment you believe, in the moment you believe, you're made righteous, adopted into the family of God. I'm going to pray for you today, if that's you, that you would make that decision. As our worship team comes back up, let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to work in us. Lord Jesus, we want to first stop and acknowledge in and, and thankfulness that your message is trustworthy and reliable. And even though right now in the world around us we see so much evidence of the enemy's work and so much evidence of fallenness, we acknowledge that the world is subject to your sovereign authority. Even death itself must answer to you. And in the same way in our own lives, some days there's plenty of evidence that you're working, that you've saved us, that you've redeemed us, that you've called us, that you're working in us in other days and other moments it's left a little bit questionable but today in faith we believe that you are working below the surface in ways that we can't even see and measure you are bringing sons and daughters to glory father right now we want to pray for the people in this room who have not made that decision to trust you god that today would be the day of salvation to hear the gospel message that you have come to earth to walk in our experience, to die on our behalf and to resurrect from the grave, giving us victory over death and to forgive us and free us from our sins. We believe that gospel message. For the person who doesn't know you today, they would believe that message and experience the goodness of the Lord for the first time today. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to move among us, stir our hearts, captivate our minds, Call us to respond in the powerful name of Jesus.